welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. Genesis Chapter 1, verses 21 and 25, New International Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, welcoming you to another episode of Anchored by Truth. I'm in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today we're continuing our discussion about Noah and the flood that's described in chapters 6 through 9 of the book of Genesis. This is actually the seventh episode that we've done in this series. So... I guess that means you think that the Bible's flood account is a subject that deserves listeners' attention. Why have we devoted so much time to a story out of the Bible that is already very well-known, R.D.? Well, greetings to all the Anchored by Truth listeners. Now, as you say, the story of Noah, the flood, and the ark is a very well-known story. But as well-known as it is, it is almost as widely misunderstood. And this is a real shame because properly understood, the story of Noah and the ark can be a really big help, a great help, to people who have questions about their faith or about the Bible. Why do you say that? Because there are so many attacks directed at the historicity of the Bible, especially about amazing accounts in the Bible, like the Bible's flood account. There are so many attacks directed at the historicity of the Bible that when believers actually begin to understand the amazing amount of evidence that testifies to the truth, to the accuracy of those stories, it can be a very uplifting moment for those believers. You know, there may be no part of the Bible that is more disputed than the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Even people who will accept the Bible's accuracy in many other areas often fall into the trap of believing that the first several chapters of Genesis are either allegory or myth. Even very strong Christians have been led down the path to believe that Genesis, at least the early parts of Genesis, is simply an extended allegorical introduction that was penned by an ancient writer to explain the universe's existence in a scientifically unsophisticated age. Or, even worse, some believers may have succumbed to the critics' contention that Genesis is just another of the various creation myths, and that the Genesis account isn't any more credible than the creation myths of other ancient civilizations. You know, there were attacks against the book of Genesis before Charles Darwin released his famous book about the origin of the species in 1859. That was the book that popularized the evolutionary hypothesis. But the attacks against Genesis have certainly escalated in both volume and vitriol ever since Darwin's famous book. Now, some observers have labeled these arguments, these attacks, these disagreements, 
as a battle for the beginning. And you worry the church has been losing the battle for the beginning for some time now, don't you? Well, unfortunately, the evidence that the church has been outmaneuvered in the battle for the beginning can be found in just about every school and classroom in America, up to and including the university setting. And the biggest problem is that if critics of the Bible can persuade people that the first several chapters of Genesis don't merit our trust, well, then it becomes that much easier for them to proceed to cast doubt on the reliability of the rest of Scripture. And that's one of the reasons that this battle for the beginning is so important. So the stakes are pretty high in this battle for the beginning, aren't they? It's not just problematic that confusion or doubt is sown about the content of Genesis. If the critics can discredit Genesis, then they can effectively undermine confidence in the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture. I guess that's bad news. Is there any good news? Well, the good news is that we have an abundance of empirical observations and scientific evidence that supports the historicity of the biblical account of creation and the account in the Bible of Noah and the Flood. But since so much animosity and hostility are directed towards these portions of the scripture, it does take some effort to overcome the criticism. And that's why we do Anchored by Truth. It's important that every Christian read and study the Bible for themselves. There's no substitute for that. But what we can do with these radio programs and podcasts is give faithful Christians a head start on investigating for themselves topics that are admittedly controversial, like the historical accuracy of a worldwide flood having ever occurred. Yes, we at Anchored by Truth try to take some of these hard topics and come at them from the standpoint of just an everyday Christian. We try to look at these subjects that are sometimes a little bit complex or complicated. We try to look at these subjects from a common sense viewpoint, basically seeking the main and plain things, if you will. And in this series, we've been doing that main and plain common sense approach with the story of Noah, the ark, and the worldwide flood. And for listeners who would like to get a similar look at the parts of Genesis that deal with creation itself and the age of the universe, we would encourage them to check out our Truth in Genesis series. It's available on most major podcasting apps. Or listeners can just go to our webpage where there are links directly to those episodes. If we, as the Church, want to have any hope for winning the battle for the beginning, we're going to have to equip ourselves to be better soldiers. In the case of Genesis, especially the first 11 chapters, that means we have to become familiar not only with what the Bible says, but also with a little information about geology, fossils, and chemistry. And for today, we're going to ask the listeners to become familiar with just a little bit of biochemistry, uh, although really not much more than they need to understand if they want to follow some of the discussions in the news about things that are going on with various viruses and vaccines. So, as astute Anchored by Truth listeners will have noticed, today we used an opening scripture from the book of Genesis. But this time we didn't use one from the flood narrative that's contained in chapters 6 through 9. We went right back to the beginning, chapter 1. I'll bet there's a pretty good reason for that, R.D. You picked that scripture because you want to continue discussing the subject we began last time, right? I mean, today you want to go more in depth about the animals and the ark. Yes, I do. For today's episode of Anchored by Truth, I wanted to go back to the literal beginning of the universe and the beginning of the Bible, 
and show not only the consistency of Scripture, but also the consistency of Scripture with evidence that we get from science. Sounds intriguing. And by doing this, you believe that many listeners will have a deeper appreciation of the fact that scientific observations often support facts that we glean from the Bible in surprising ways. Is that correct? Correct. Today we want to reinforce one of the points that we made in our last episode, that the Bible's descriptions of the animals that survived on the ark and ultimately led to all the biodiversity that exists in the world today is entirely reasonable. You know, there's a lot of confusion about which animals were actually on board the ark, and that leads to confusion about how biblical creationists explain contemporary biodiversity. Now, some of that confusion is just the result of people not focusing on the details of the text. But unfortunately, there are a lot of straw man arguments that are deliberately used to try to discredit the Bible's accounts. But when you understand what the Bible is actually saying and what informed creationists actually believe, the straw men are quickly and easily exposed and dismissed. Okay. A straw man is a logical fallacy where an opponent sets up a weak or imaginary argument so they can easily knock it down, just as it would be easy to knock down a straw scarecrow in a cornfield. Can you give us an example of a straw man that is often used by those who try to discredit the historicity of the flood story? Well, one straw man used to try to discredit the Bible's flood record is by saying that there is no way that you could build a single boat that could hold two of every species on earth. For instance, there are hundreds of recognized breeds of dogs, and naturally that doesn't even begin to include other canine species such as wolves, jackals, foxes, etc. There are also dozens of recognized breeds of the common house cat. Based on the house cats that I've had, I rather think they would reject the notion that any of them are common. Well, agreed. No house cat, worthy of the title, would ever accept the label of being common. Anyway, there are dozens of breeds of cats that are recognized by breeding associations, and that doesn't include the dozens of varieties of wild cats, both large and small. And dogs and cats are, of course, just two of the categories of animals that we know about today that have dozens or even hundreds of species. So the person offering the straw man takes this simple fact and tries to conjure up this vision of a boat that would have been overrun with hundreds of thousands of species of cats and dogs and finches and owls and everything else imaginable. The critic is quickly trying to show that the Bible's account of Noah bringing on board two of every species of animals on earth as they exist on the earth today would be ridiculous. But of course, that's not what the Bible actually says, is it? As we heard in our opening scripture, the Bible does not say that God created species, but rather that God created kinds of animals. And as we mentioned in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, A biblical kind is much broader than what is referred to as a species in terms of modern taxonomy. We touched on this in our last episode. Can you remind us of what we talked about? Sure. Chapter 1 of Genesis notes that God created animals, land, sea, and air animals, according to their kinds. And as we noted last time, there is not a one-to-one correspondence between the biblical term kind and any modern taxonomic classification but a kind is definitely broader than a species. You know, the current taxonomic hierarchy uses eight levels. 
Now going from the general to the specific, they are domain, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. Most creationist biologists believe that the biblical kind falls somewhere between a family and a genus. So, when the Bible uses the word kind, the Bible is simply referring to animals that can breed together and produce fertile offspring. In other words, the biblical term kind is a functional rather than a categorical definition. And this is a key point. It will eliminate a lot of confusion if people get away from the notion that somehow Noah was instructed to carry two of every species of land animal on the earth on the ark. That's simply not the case. And that same word kind is used with respect to the instructions Noah received about which animals to take on the ark. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 20 and 21, God told Noah, quote, You are going to bring into the ark two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive, unquote. So what we heard in our opening scripture from Genesis chapter 1 is consistent with this instruction in Genesis chapter 6. Precisely. And it is also consistent with what we see in nature, not only at the level of what might be termed gross morphology, but also with the biochemical observations we see in cell machinery. So, here is where we get into the biochemistry you mentioned earlier. But before we delve into that, What do you mean by gross morphology? Well, within biology, morphology is simply the study of shapes and the arrangement of the parts of organisms with respect to how those parts function and develop. Morphology is a basic part of assigning animals to their various taxonomic classifications. For instance, it's pretty easy for just about everybody to distinguish between cats and dogs because of how they're shaped. And even though cats and dogs can come in a wide variety of sizes and colors, it's still easy to tell cats and dogs apart. And even though lions, for instance, are much bigger than, don't call them common, house cats, all cats have distinctive features that tell us that they are part of the same general group. In the world of taxonomy, all cats belong to the family Philidae. So all cats share certain features in their appearance and they all have common functional features. All cats have five toes on their forefeet and four on their hind feet. They all have curved claws, which are attached to the terminal bones of their toes with ligaments and tendons. Now, this enables them to do that famous thing cats can do, which is to extend or retract their claws. Cats have lithe and flexible bodies, and they have muscular limbs that enable them to be agile, and which frankly gives them superb balance. So, just from their morphology, their shape, and the arrangement of their parts, we can tell that all cats are related, and modern taxonomy assigns them to their own family. And we know that the family of cats, Felidae, is clearly distinct from the family Canidae, which is the taxonomic family to which dogs are assigned. Okay, that seems fairly straightforward. But how does this help confirm the biblical text that we have been talking about? Because the Bible tells us that God created various kinds of animals and that all animals, as well as plants for that matter, reproduce within their kind. Now, one straw man that is often hurled at biblical creationists is that we insist on the, quote, fixity of the species. 
Well, then the critic then observed that since new species emerge on the earth all the time, then the Bible can't be trusted, in part because they say, well, you creationists insist on fixity of the species, and fixity of the species is refuted by science. But creationists don't insist on fixity of species, do they? We believe that the Bible describes the fixity of the kinds, and as we have been discussing, a biblical kind is much broader than a taxonomic species. That's what makes the fixity of species allegation a straw man. It's a flimsy argument that is never used by informed creationists. Exactly right. And as you have observed, we do observe, even from morphology, that there are discontinuities that we observe in nature, such as the difference between dogs and cats. No one worries that because we have a male dog at home and a female cat, that the dog is going to get the cat pregnant. Adopt a male cat from the pound, and the situation changes instantly. We all know that there are fundamental breaks that exist in the plant and animal worlds, don't we? Yes. So, the lines of demarcation that we see in nature are consistent with the Bible's descriptions of God having created in kinds. Now, evolutionists explain these discontinuities by appealing to increasing specialization due to natural selection. And this is a point on in which informed creationists agree with evolutionists. Informed creationists agree that there is such a thing as natural selection. And both evolutionists and biblical creationists agree that the modern species that we see around the world are due to the forces of natural selection. We believe that the forces that are found in the environment do produce adaptation in species that will ultimately cause species to separate one from another. But where the creationists disagree with the evolutionists is that evolutionists traced every animal on earth back to a single common ancestor, which itself arose from the random collision of inorganic matter. In other words, evolutionists need to see some form of continuity in all living organisms. Discontinuities in nature argue against evolution being true. That is not true for biblical creationism. Biblical creationism sees discontinuity having been built in animals and in plants from the very beginning because the Bible is very clear that God again created within the kinds. So evolutionists need some form of continuity among all living organisms. Biblical creationists are perfectly comfortable with finding discontinuities. So, that leads us back to biochemistry. In the 1950s, our understanding of biochemistry was radically changed when James Watson and Francis Crick published their famous paper on the double helix structure of DNA. Shortly after that, scientists began to understand far more about the structures that exist within living cells, didn't they? And what they discovered revolutionized our awareness of the immense complexity of those structures. Precisely. And part of what the scientists have discovered reinforced the fact that the discontinuities that we see at the gross morphological level continue into the biochemistry within the cell. How so? Because we see those same discontinuities in the proteins that make up what you might call the machinery of life. So let's do a brief review of some very basic cell biology. All life on Earth is based on cells. Now, some cells have nuclei and some don't. 
But all life on Earth is based on some kind of a cell. And cells have a permeable membrane that separates the cell from the outside world. And that membrane has to be permeable because, at a minimum, it has to allow energy-generating substances in and waste products to be removed. Unfortunately, that also means that harmful things like viruses can enter into the cell. Yes. Anyway, the basic work of the cell is done by thousands and thousands of molecular machines we call proteins. Proteins are themselves formed of various combinations of amino acids. Amino acids usually consist of about 10 to 20 atoms. Now, there are hundreds of amino acids that exist, but only 20 of those hundreds are used by living creatures to build proteins. And science has now mapped the exact amino acid sequence for thousands of proteins, just like putting a series of letters on the board. And that's why today we talk about the genetic code, because we can see exactly how all of those amino acids are positioned in long sequences to form the various proteins and nucleic acids. And that enables us, in effect, to have that string of letters that we call the genetic code. So one of the things that we now know from this cellular biochemistry is that there are certain proteins that are common across a wide variety of living creatures. And we know that the individual structure of that protein, even though the protein is common across all kinds of different plants and animals, we know that the individual structure of that protein within that particular species is dependent on the creature that that protein is serving. Therefore, we can now measure at a molecular level the degree of variation between those creatures by looking at the variance in these proteins that are common across many different species. So let's say that someone went up to a board in front of a classroom and wrote a sequence of, say, 30 letters on the board. Then someone else went up to the board and wrote the same sequence but switched a few letters around we could tell precisely what the amount of difference was between the two sequences. If the sequence varied in three places, they would vary by 10%. If they varied in six places, they would vary by 20%. Exactly. Well, we now know that the discontinuities, the breaks that we see between creatures, the ones that we can easily see with our naked eyes, we now know that those same discontinuities are repeated in the microscopic world. For instance, there is a protein called cytochrome C, which is closely connected with cellular energy production. And as such, this cytochrome C protein is found in animals as diverse as bacteria, wheat, yeast, fish, and mammals, among others. Now, if the evolutionary hypothesis were true, you would expect the variance of the protein structure to be considerably less between a bacterium and a yeast than between, say, a bacteria and fish, or bacteria and birds, or between bacteria and mammals. Because supposedly from an evolutionary standpoint, yeast would be closer to a bacterium than a horse or man. According to evolution, simple organisms preceded complex ones. Fish preceded dinosaurs that turned into birds, and all of this preceded mammals. The evolutionary hypothesis postulates a continuous sequence of development that led from simple creatures to ever more complicated ones. So it would be reasonable for an evolutionist to want to be able to see a steady progression in the biochemistry. After all, down through the years we've heard a lot about the search for missing links. Well, obviously the phrase missing links 
would be meaningless if they didn't think a chain existed somewhere. Yes, but that's the exact opposite of what you see in biochemistry. Now, here is a direct quote from Michael Denton's book, Evolution, A Theory in Crisis. Cytochromes from organisms as diverse as man, lamprey, fruit fly, wheat, and yeast all exhibit a sequence divergence between 64% and 67% from this particular bacterial cytochrome. Now, what Michael Denton is saying that at the molecular biological level, you have the exact same discontinuities in nature that we can see in the plants and animals that exist around us. Molecular biochemistry does not show continuous chains or sequences any more than our unaided vision. So both gross morphological observations and the micro world of atoms, molecules, and proteins are perfectly consistent with the Bible's declaration that God created kinds and that those kinds remain separate and distinct from one another from the standpoint of reproduction. And Noah brought one pair of a particular kind of land animal and bird on the ark. Those the adaptive abilities built into the DNA of those kinds was able to produce all the various species today. Would you say this proves the truth of the Bible account? Well, what I would say is that this means that our empirical observations of the world around us, all the way down to the microscopic level, with respect to the function, formation, and adaptation of living creatures, is perfectly consistent with the Bible text. And in some cases, the Bible framework explains those observations a whole lot better than does the evolutionary hypothesis. Evolution looks for continuity. The Bible describes a natural world that is fundamentally discontinuous when it comes to reproduction. And when we look at plants and animals, either at the level that we can see with our naked eye or the levels that can only be seen with microscopes, we see discontinuities that have never been bridged despite the fact that there has been an intense search going on for these missing links for well over 150 years. Cats remain cats. Dogs remain dogs. Apples don't turn into oranges. Still, we understand that not everyone will agree with our conclusions. But one thing we can say is that, properly understood, the Bible's record is entirely consistent with contemporary scientific observations, even if not all scientists accept the fact. Well, next time we are going to begin to wrap up our series on Noah by reviewing the substantial amount of evidence that we have been covering that demonstrates that the biblical flood account can be reasonably accepted as literal history. Bible critics may doubt this is true, but their doubt is just that, doubt. And doubt is not evidence. Sounds to me like a good time for a prayer. Today let's listen to a prayer of adoration for the Father God who is the source of all life and truth and will be found by any who seek him. A Prayer of Adoration of the Father Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we praise you and adore you and bow down before you. We are overcome by thoughts of your majesty and excellence and we humbly come to you to worship you in spirit and in truth. We know from your word that you are a God in whom there is no imperfection, want, or lack. You are perfect in all of your attributes and all of your ways. 
because you are the source of all light and illumination, there is no shadow or dark place in you. All creation stands in silent awe when it turns toward you. You dwell in the loftiest of the high places, surrounded by the angels that you created to serve you. Glory is your robe, power is your mantle, exaltation your drape, and sovereignty your cloak. Mere words could never describe your grandeur, yet we are exalted as we try. You alone are God. There is no other God like you. There never has been, and there never will be. There will come a time when you will fully exercise your dominion as is fitting and right, and you will set right all that does not conform to your will. We look toward that day when we can stand breathless and amazed at your beauty and holiness. Until that time, let us grow in the knowledge and appreciation of your unmatched glory, and let all honor, praise, and worship be given only to you. In Christ's name, let all who know him praise the Lord. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.